we briefly review the history of the scriptures and even after the scriptures in the whole of this last 2,000 years, then you, you may be well aware that there are people who have always said that they have received a word from God, who've had a vision from God, who consider in the Old Testament uh, the false prophets, the false prophets claiming to have a word from the Lord, and in many times it was merely a lying spirit sent by the Lord to these lying uh, prophets who did not speak according to the word and the testimony of God. There was no light in them. And if we come into the New Testament uh, period also, we know that there were false prophets even in the, ra in the times of the apostles. And, and after the time of the apostles in the early church, there were, there, there were false, false prophets, people with false vision, visions. There was, there was uh, 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 Marcion uh, with his two prophetesses and, and having so-called experiences of the Spirit and visions and dreams and establishing, uh, they thought, a, a new Jerusalem somewhere. But thankfully, the Lord dealt with them. Uh, in, in quick uh, time, but even in, uh, later on in, in the time of the, the full ascendancy of the Roman Catholic Church, where we consider its high point, or we could say biblically its low point, but the high point in the 1200s, 1100s and the 1200s, where they again would have but many visionaries, many people that they would later call saints, having all sorts of dreams and visions of God and of Mary and whatever, and but not according to the Word of God. Speaking a different word, uh, led by a different spirit, spirit coming through the time of the Reformation, again the same. The same you had, there's Wicklow uh, prophets who came and, 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 and said that they received uh, dreams and visions and, and, and they wanted to add to the Word of God, which brings us then very much to the modern day, where you would have, uh, you would have uh, false prophets, you would have uh, preachers, um, false teachers, especially within the charismatic movement, uh, who again would say that they've had visions, they've had dreams, that they've been to heaven, that they've they, that they've have all sorts of experiences of meeting with God, as if it's a most everyday appearance. They'll go to they'll go to Tim Hortons and, and just sit down and have have a cup of coffee, and in the same sort of light and and, and vague way, they say they will also they have visions from the Lord, and the Lord just comes and sits down with them and, and chats to them as if they are his their best mate, their best friend. So many they say that they that they have these visitations. That they go up to heaven on a regular basis. And yet what we really hear, if ever hear, is any of them falling into the fits of terror as they've come into the presence of the most holy God. It's not something that you hear. No, they would suggest that they are on very familiar speaking terms with Christ, and yet they seem their Christ, it seems, seems to be devoid of the holiness that the Lord of hosts has as he reveals himself to the prophet Isaiah. Well, it's clear that those stories that I've mentioned are exactly that, stories. They're made up, they're inventions. They're inventions to impress a gullible and Bible-ignorant people. And so they can say all sorts of things, and the people believe them, the people are told to believe them. 
I'm told to believe that they are some sort of super spiritual saint that lives sort of supernatural lives above and beyond anything that the, that the mere believer could have. But because those stories are made up, they have been proven to be liars and they have been proven uh, to have unclean lips. But when we look at Isaiah's meeting with the one true and living God, we see something completely different. A meeting which was very true, but also very different to what such people would say. And however much we might understand of Isaiah, here we are in chapter 6. And if we think that chapter 6 must in time come after chapter 5, then we might find it strange that in chapter 6 that, that the Lord's holiness and, 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 and Isaiah's repentance is happening at this point. But it quite easily can be the case that chapter 6 is Isaiah's conversion. Could be. The, meaning, the opinion upon that is divided. But in any case, it is a tremendous meeting that he has. Because Isaiah has come into the temple. He has come into the temple in Jerusalem. He has come, no doubt, uh, to worship. And, and he receives a vision of God, a fresh vision of the Lord. Whatever his understanding of God was, it was certainly changed after he had met with the Lord. And that is what... I trust that today, with the, with the Lord's blessing, that we too would have a fresh vision of the Lord. A fresh understanding of who this God is that we claim to worship. Whom we should obey. Whom we must love. And so that is the title of the message this morning, with the Lord's gracious help. A fresh vision of the Lord. And as we open up this chapter and look at the initial verses, we see firstly the holy, eternal king. The holy, eternal king, just taking from, from verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled uh, the temple. Let me just help the, the youngsters amongst us. When we say the train here, you've got to imagine a king and a king having a great, having a great cloak or gown. And, th and that gown is so long that it drapes past the throne and it goes down the steps of the throne, as it were, goes all the way into the throne room. But here we have the Lord coming into his house, into the temple. Uh, even David calls it the palace, the palace of God in, in, in First Chronicles. And this place that belongs to the Lord is built to the glory of the Lord and this train, as it were, hangs down from the throne upon which he sits and it fills the temple. It is a majestic and a glorious and a terrifying sight. But notice with me that what, 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 what is said at the beginning of this prophecy, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the, king, in the year that the king of the Jews died, he receives this vision, a vision of the true and eternal king of the Jews. The king of all creation is revealed to him. So it's not for no reason that the Lord uh, appears at that time and causes his prophet to write down that very date marker. And the king that he sees is a king that will never die. He is a king that took on human flesh and who died for a time, but for our sakes. Not that he had to die, Uzziah had to die. He was a man. He was a sinner. 
and the soul that sins it shall die and he had to die but the Lord chose to die but death could not hold him and so Isaiah having this vision of the ever-living King of glory the Lord the Lord of hosts Jehovah himself and we see then as we look and open up verse 2 we see how he is fearfully worshipped above it and that is above the temple stood the seraphims each one had six wings with twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly and so as the Lord is appearing uh, to his people certainly appearing to Isaiah in his in his temple he's doing that which he desires to do to presence himself with his people the Lord has never lost that desire he has had meeting houses and churches uh, uh, built uh, all around the world where he has sent his gospel that he would presence himself with his people it is his great desire his desire to be present with us is greater than our desire to be present with him else we would never miss a meeting ever but he desires to be with us and, and that's what we see that when he presents himself what do we see with him we see angelic beings that are revealed in his presence and they're called here the the seraphim uh, one seraph, uh, two seraphim, and if we add an English S just to make clear to the readers that it's a plural, then we have it here, seraphims. But a seraph is a burning one, is what the word means. The burning ones. Burning with what? Well, we see something, they're burning with zeal. They're burning with zeal for the holiness and for the glory and for the worship of the one true and living God. But see what they have they have three sets of wings we know of other angelic creatures that would appear to have one set of wings others that have two sets of wings these here uh, are shown here in isaiah uh, with three sets of wings these seraphim and what do they do it's described for us and not for no reason it's described for us that here we have the seraphim and with one with two of them they cover his head covers their face as we we're looking away and with two they covered their feet to cover as it were the, the the bareness and the nakedness of their angelic feet and with two of them he did fly so we have then the the, the, the wings that are flying the wings that are the wings that are are covering and the other wings that are covering also and why would they do this? Well, they do this in the same way that the cherubim that are upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant do. They also are not looking up, but they are looking down, and their wings are also uh, forward and touching each other, but looking down and covering themselves as well. Well, why, why would they do so? Well, it's to hide their eyes from the intense, fiery glory of the one true and living God remember when the Lord um, when Moses pleaded with the Lord that he might see his glory and the Lord uh, agreed to it on the mount there in uh, uh, Exodus 34 and yet he he hid Moses in the cleft in a split in the rock and he and he put his hand upon him and turned his face we can understand away from the glory he says you cannot see my my front parts you cannot see the glory that it exudes and and shines forth from my from my full glory but only from the hind parts 
Only that was safe enough for Moses. And so it is when God reveals himself in his full glory. It is intense. It is shocking. And you might want to compare it with, with the brightness of metal. We think of metal, and if you heat it up in a, in a furnace and it gets red hot, and then you can't touch it, not physically, not with your hands. You burn yourself. It would, it would do you harm. You say, well, is it like the red hotness of metal? Well, I would say, in many ways, the anger, the wrath of God is like the red heat of metal. But I would say, if you carry on heating metal, what do you get? It becomes white hot. White hot. And I would suggest that that is like the holiness of God. The holiness of God. White, hot holiness burning forth. They cannot bear, these seraphim, to even look upon the holy purity and the holy glory that shines forth from the God whom they serve day and night. And they serve him continually. They're always in his presence. They know him better than we do. They fear him more than we do. And yet they do not sin. These are the holy angels or one of their types. These are holy creatures. They do not need to fear the wrath of God for their sin, for they do not sin. And yet they fear the holy holiness and the holy presence of the Lord more than we do. More than we do. They know something and understand something of God's holiness that we do not. Which is why we're so easy and free with the Word of God. Pick and mix. We prioritize the Word. See, that one I will, I will attend to. It suits me. That one challenges me. I'll ignore it. That is not the fear of God. That's not the fear of God. We're not hiding ourselves from God's glory. We're hiding our sin from God's wrath. But we see then how he is fearfully worshipped by these glorious angelic beings. But here are the words of worship also. Uh, the words of worship. And they cry out one to another. How many there are, we're not told, but there's more than one because it's plural. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's Jehovah. Uh, Sabaoth, as we know that phrase in the New Testament. The Lord of armies. Jehovah of legions and legions and legions of angels and of people. Of all the many glorious attributes that Jehovah God has, and there are many, and as you read about these things and study these things, and we can, we, can, we can meditate on them, and we can think of God's mercies and God's grace. We can consider His loving kindness. We can consider His love. And these things we can bring into prayer. We can bring into worship. As I said, we can bring it into our meditation as we're reading something that's revealed to us in the Scriptures but only one is brought out in worship here. Only one of those attributes of the Godhead. And, and it's one that's repeated over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
Uh, and why is it said three times? Well, there are two good reasons why that might be the case, and they both might be valid together. It, it may be firstly just expressing the holiness of each of the three persons of the Trinity. Saying that the Father is the Holy Father, the Son is the Holy One, the, the, the Spirit is the Holy Ghost. And that would be a very valid understanding of what that would mean and why they would be singing it. But also Hebrew in its way that it describes things and says things can repeat words for emphasis, to build up on them. And so saying holy, yes, God is holy. But then repeating the word holy, God is more holy than anyone. And then by adding a third holy, God is the most holy of all. So, so different is His holiness. It's not just more holy, but it is a different holiness. And we won't go into all the, all the depths of the doctrines of God's holiness uh, today uh, by any means. But God's holiness is so different and so greatly different uh, from any holiness that his creatures have. Now, if we consider the, the holy angels that, he, that we're even mentioning here, the, the seraphim that are mentioned here, so different from their holiness that even they, holy creatures in the presence of divine holiness, are fearful towards the holiness that comes forth from God, the purity that comes upon them, intimidating holiness, fiery holiness. And, and they're caused to sing about it. As it, as, as it were, this, this weight of glory and holiness that comes upon them, and the only thing they can, they can sing about is, oh, the, the holiness, the holiness of the Lord of hosts. Too much for them even to bear, but bearing it still, it causes them to glory, uh, glorify God and to glory in His holiness. And yet again, I'll make that comparison. If the holy angels and these holy seraphim are so without sin and they are pure, how can God's holiness be so different? Well, it is different, firstly, because God's holiness is not a created holiness. The holiness that the angels have, the, the holy angels have, and even the, the angels of the devil before their fall, the, the, and the devil himself before his fall, the holiness that they had was created in them. God had created it in them as part of them. And it's the same case with Adam. When God created Adam, he created him with holiness. Holiness was part of his makeup, of his character, of his soul. It described his soul. But that is a created holiness, granted to them by the Creator. But God's holiness is Himself. It describes His being. It describes who He is. It, it is Him, not just a created part of Him. It is Him. He is holy, holy, and holy. But secondly... God's holiness is, is not a limited holiness. See, a creature that is created in holiness with what we call concreated holiness, he's created with that holiness within him, is a limited creature. Even these seraphim are limited creatures. 
But like who God is, His holiness is without any limitation. This holiness is an infinite holiness. And, and as it is with God, it is an eternal holiness. And being an infinite and eternal holiness, it is also like God an unchanging holiness. The, the, the brightness, the purity of this holiness never changes, but goes forth from God in an unending stream. And so exceptional is God's holiness, and in some ways so central to who He is, is that all of His other attributes can be called holy. All of the others. He has a holy mercy, a holy graciousness, a holy love. But in connection with His holiness, and very close to it, we may even say as an expression of God's holiness, is His righteousness. Is the righteousness of God, is a, is a holy righteousness. And that righteousness is a pure righteousness. It's an unsullied righteousness. It's not a stained righteousness. It's certainly not a hypocritical righteousness or a self-righteousness in the way of a sinner. But it is a self-righteousness in the way of God because that righteousness comes forth from himself. And he determines all that is right and wrong. God doesn't work to a list of rules and standards and therefore declares himself to be righteous. No, the standards and the rules that God implements, that God creates, that God determines, determines that they're right or wrong. Determines whether they're unholy or they are holy. Because he is so holy. Anything that he comes out with, any, 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 any limitation, any commandment, any statute that he has is purely holy because he himself is pure and holy. There is no shadow of turning with God. There is no lie to be found in God. But all is holy and pure and righteous. And all wickedness and all sin we can describe as unholiness and unrighteousness. That's how we can describe it. That's how we can understand it. Which means that God is terrifyingly strict and thorough in his judgments upon sin and unrighteousness. In his judgment of it and in his punishment of it because as he describes himself in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and as it's repeated in the New Testament, it says this, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And again, that's a holy jealousy. So we can take the holiness and attach it to all of those attributes to understand how pure and how clear and how unsullied and how eternal and infinite and unchanging all of God's attributes are. But we see, as I would like just briefly to continue looking at his righteousness, his holy righteousness. And what is then our reaction to such a holy, righteous God? What is your reaction? to a holy and righteous God. As we read in the Scriptures, as we read together this morning, as you read the Scriptures yourself, is it that you fear Him? 
Do you fear God as the seraphim fear the Lord? Do we also learn to fear the Lord as the seraphim do, but in our case as sinners, that we would not sin against that holiness? That we would not besmirch that holy name? That we who declare ourselves to be the children of God and yet sin against this holy God? Job 28 and verse 28, that makes it easy to remember that reference. Job 28 and 28, we read this, And unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And so let us understand that the unconverted sinner that has a fresh vision of the Lord and of the Lord's holiness is to be convicted, has to be struck to the heart that God's wrath is upon him as the Holy Ghost works that truth within him or her. And having been impressed upon him his own unholiness and the holy righteousness of God, what is he or she to do? Well, it's to flee to this Lord, to make peace with them. How do you make peace with someone? Well, you don't flee from them. That just delays the inevitable. It's the wonderful truth of the gospel is that, yes, God is wrathful over your sin. You are God's enemy. Come to me, God says. Not flee for your lives, but come for your lives. Come to me. And, and then that sinner would have their sins forgiven, and they would have that peace with God, and they would know the love of God and not the righteous wrath of God. But the believer also, the believer also must take to heart what we've read this morning and what we understand about the one true and living God, that we would learn more and more to fear Him, to fear God, that the believer would not treat sin so lightly and so easily, would not rebel so easily, not exalt so easily yourself in pride, but would continually repent of the sins, the offenses against this holy, 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 righteous Lord. Because only then would you truly love the Lord. Then your, lo then your love for the Lord would not be a lip service, would not be a sin of the lips. Would not be an uncleanness of the lips. And then you would love him aright. But how many Christians do think lightly of their sin? Do you think lightly of your sins? You keep some sins in reserve, not repenting of them. Some bosom sins, keeping hold of them, because you have no problem with them, but God does. And you are not to be God over your own sins declaring what is evil and what is good. No, we must learn to fear this thrice-holy Jehovah because without that fear, we continue to sin against Him. We continue to sin against His people and finding excuse after excuse not to flee from these sins which are an offense to a holy God. They offend him. They insult him. 
But here's a simple truth that is a simple, logical, reasonable uh, truth to, consi- to consider that if you expect, and you do expect, believer, for God to forgive and forget your sins, to put your sins uh, away in, in, in the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west, you expect God to do that, but why do you not do that with your own sin? Why do you not depart from sin? Why do you not flee from sin? Big sins, small sins, they're all sins. Sin is any want, any lack of conformity to the revealed will of God and the actual breaking of the commandments of God. And yet we are to flee from it, not to keep it. We are to repent in sackcloth and ashes and not physical, but in the heart we should have that attitude. O God and my Father, I have sinned against Thee. I have sinned against Thy holiness. Thine eyes are too holy to look upon sin. And yet we call upon Him to look upon us in mercy. Do we still have the sin, though? You know what your sins are. Your conscience may be speaking to you now if you even have a conscience that still works. And this fear is an expression of love. But it may be that you don't repent of your bosom sins, which would mean to me an indication that maybe you do not love God. Maybe you do not fear God. Maybe that religion is merely a cover for sin. which would mean that God's wrath is still upon you. Let me just make a brief emphasis, a brief point. Do not confuse the fear of God in the Scriptures that is for the people of God, that is the Spirit of God that causes us to call Abba Father, is different from the worldly understanding of the fear of God or the fleshly understanding of the fear of God. The true fear of God for the believer is the greatest of Christian virtues. It's the greatest of of grace at work in you because it means that you understand who this God is and you understand how this God would be treated by you how you are to live for him and to live with him. Psalm 86 and verse 11 says, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The holy eternal king. Secondly, the unholy mortal man. The unholy mortal man. And so as those I mentioned in the introduction, those that consider themselves highly spiritual and very holy, only in comparison with sinful men, of course. But consider now the reaction, the true reaction of someone who has a true meeting with God. We see this with Isaiah in verse 5. Verse 5 then said, I, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is coming into the presence of God. He's he's coming into the temple of God. 
And he, although a God-fearing Jew, living in the land of the Jews, he hasn't gone away, he hasn't gone into Moab against the command of God. He's, he, he's, he's in the land of Israel, he's in, he's, in, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. And although he is a God-fearing Jew, he is a sinner nonetheless, we understand that. But what happens when he has a meeting with God? He becomes a spiritually broken man. Here's nothing of pride. Nothing of looking back to what he's done for the Lord or, 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 or similar to that boasting that Paul doesn't boast. He speaks according to man. But when he was saying he was a, he was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day, he, you know, of this tribe and of this family and having studied this and having done that, of course, Paul wasn't boasting. He was just explaining uh, the Lord's uh, providential uh, goodness towards him so that he could speak with authority on the things of the Jews. But here we see nothing of this with Isaiah. It says, I, I'm the son of Amos, and I am of, the, I am of this tribe, and I am of this, and I have done all of this. And I've kept the law of God. And, and I am of the people of God. There is no boasting here. There is no boasting. But a groan, shall we say. A groan is emitted from his mouth as he sees this, as he witnesses the king, as he sees this vision, as he hears the holy, holy, holy of the seraphim, and his, his first reaction is, woe is me. Now, woe is maybe an old-fashioned sounding word. But it's a word that you find in, in many, many of the languages. Even the word that you have for woe in Hebrew is very similar to the word woe. The word for woe in Latin is almost the same as woe and in Greek and in, and in other languages. It's a very similar word. It's the same it's the same heartfelt, impassioned expression of grief and of despair. Woe! Now that might be a woe that goes forth to a, a, a Gentile nation surrounding Israel as we know. Is that the Lord would send his prophets uh, to Syria or, or send, him, send, send the prophets to, to some pagan king and they say, woe unto you. There is despair, there is grief there is judgment upon you. Or the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 23 when he says, Woe unto you Pharisees. Again, there's that word, there's warning, there's threat, there's, there's, there's grief, despair in that word. But here we have the prophet of God referring it to himself. Woe is me. Woe am I. Despair, grief, judgment, fear is mine. God help me. I'm in the presence of God. I'm experiencing something of the holiness of God. And you can imagine that he's shaking. It's not revealed. But the words would reveal something that a fear has gripped his soul. 
He sees, therefore, as he, he witnesses something of the holiness of God, he hears the holiness of God being glorified and praised about. What does he then see? Well, he sees his own unholiness. He sees his own sin. And no doubt he feels the guilt for sin. He feels that unholiness. Not just sees it or is aware of it. No doubt he feels it. He's reminded of his personal disobedience. He's reminded of his, his religious hypocrisy. Because he's not looking at others. He's not saying, woe is them. This people of unclean lips. He says, woe is me. Because he has to deal with God. It's a personal meeting between him and God. He's not exalting himself. Yeah, this is a people of unclean lips. My lips are not that dirty. Not as sullied as their lips. No, he's not a hypocrite. He's not self-righteous. Not at this moment. He can't get away with it. The truth and reality of a a true meeting uh, between a sinner and between a holy God forces you back to the basics of the truth. So all of that religious work and all that self-ideas and self-aggrandizement and the pride of man and the, the pride of the flesh, it all goes... It is, as it were, burnt away by the fire of God's holy presence. And it's just the sinner and his God. Woe is me. And that deep experience of woe is explained to us in the words that he then utters. He says, for I am undone. I'm undone. I'm undone. Literally, if you've, if you've got a good copy of the Scriptures, you'll have a marginal note that says this means literally cut off. I'm cut off, even the sense of being cut off to be destroyed. That's why undone is such a great translation. I'm undone. I've come to an end of myself. God, as it were, has pulled the rug of self-righteous religion from under the feet of Isaiah And now he has, having a true meeting with God, he has a clear impression of his personal unholiness. Holy, holy is the Lord. Unholy, unholy, unholy is the sinner before this holy Lord. I see that time is against us. And we're only halfway through. So, Lord willing, we will um, continue uh, with this message this evening. Let that be an encouragement for those of you who only come out in the morning to come out in the evening as well or follow online. And may the Lord bless his word uh, to us and that we, we will have this fresh vision of Jehovah ourselves. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank thee that the one true living and holy God, that thou hast revealed thyself 
uh, to Isaiah and therefore to us in thy word that we have this meeting between the holiness of God and the unholiness of this thy prophet set down in scripture for us that we may learn from it that we too may be broken by it that we may see thee as thou art that we may fear thee therefore that we may truly love thee and that we may have our sins dealt with by thee that we may glorify thy name that we may know thee as thou art would thou grant this lord keep thy word warm and fresh in our hearts in as we come to open it up again this evening and complete this message this word of the lord oh god grant us grace to fear and love thee maybe for the first time as we're converted to christ but lord do that work to thine own glory we pray thee in jesus name amen amen uh, please open your uh, songbooks please to hymn 517 hymn 517 teach me thy way O lord teach me thy way thy gracious aid afford teach me thy way help me to walk aright more by faith less by sight lead me with heavenly light teach me thy way we'll stand to sing uh, hymn 517 remain standing for the benediction please 